KFI AM 640. You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you for the next two hours. It's always such a treat to be with you and share my knowledge. Uh, I uh, have a PhD in clinical psychology. I am not a practicing clinician. I teach at Cal State Channel Islands. I teach psychology of health counseling and I teach developmental psychology. And I am just obsessed with the science of human mating because it is at the core of all human behavior. It really is. If you take anything we do in life and take it down to uh, increasing somebody's opportunity to mate, uh, you will find whether it's making more money for guys, whether it's getting a little nip and tuck for girls, it all goes down to mating. Every behavior we do in some way does. Um, So, uh, on the weekend, well, I guess it still is the weekend technically. It feels like a work day to me. I'm here with Joey Morata, my fabulous producer. Um, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, well, let's see. Uh, enjoyed the uh, festivities, the uh, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, oh, did you have green beer? I didn't have green beer, actually. Yeah, I, I, you know, that's not, that color green is not found in nature. Yeah. And I don't think it's good for you. It's a little weird. Then uh, did you run the LA Marathon today? No. You know, I didn't do that either. I know. I okay. <laughs> it was too much of the beer. Zero for zero, yeah. <laughs> so far. <laughs> um, well, I was down in uh, Costa Mesa and then Anaheim. I spent my Saturday doing all of Orange County. In Costa Mesa, I was at our Liftik event, and I met more than 300 KFI listeners. And I can't tell you how good it feels to see real people and real faces because, I mean, we have a small crew here, right? We got Amy there in the newsroom. We got me. We got Joey. Josh is in the. But you know, it's not like an audience, and it's just me and my microphone, uh, trying to imagine these faces. And now I have faces and names. And one of the things I was particularly touched by in meeting such fabulous KFI listeners is how many clinicians listen. And uh, the ones who came up to talk to me anyway said thank you that I do a pretty darn good job of translating sometimes complicated scientific matter into news you can use, language that everybody can understand. And what I told the clinicians who came up to talk to me, and whether they were therapists, MDs, I met an interesting neuroscientist, is um, if you have ideas for topics, please email them to me or uh, send them by Twitter or a private message on Facebook. If I say something that's not quite correct or new research has shown up to refute it, Hey, let me know. I mean, this is a conversation. And what we're trying to do is raise the health literacy and specifically the literacy into mental health issues and human behavior issues for everybody. So we're all in this together. Uh, Speaking of which, uh, last week I was talking about my tried and true technique for finding someone who wants to have a real relationship on the dating app Tinder. And one of the things I suggested to women was that, you know, after just a few, don't get, don't fall in love by text. Don't start this long list of private messages where you're really just falling in love with your own projections. You really are. You don't really know who the person is. Get on the phone. Have a conversation. So um, I was amazed that someone wrote, wrote to us, called us. Joey, how did you hear from our yeah, listener? Yeah, anonymous uh, voice message. Anonymous voice. Oh, you can even leave anonymous voice messages. <laughs> I love this, the open lines of communication. Saying that Dr. Walsh should not have told women to give their phone number out. So I want to remind everybody, we live in a time where technology can be our friend or our foe. That means that, yes, someone could track you down to your home address If your bill goes to your home address, I don't know about you, but I haven't had any bills go to my home address in about 25 years. Uh, I use a P.O. box for everything. Even the the address on my driver's license is not where I live. I can't believe I'm telling you this. Now you're going to go tracking down. the. (laughs) Um, But um, the other thing is if, if somebody wants to hurt you or murder you or murder somebody in general, they probably won't take the time to chat with you forever on Tinder, have phone calls, meet with you in a public place where you have your own transportation. Trust me. And we have the unique ability, thanks to technology, to block our number. We could ask for their number and call them and block our number, or we could simply block them from ever being able to call again. So get wise with technology and use it to your advantage. But I do think that any kind of communication above and beyond a bunch of messages on an app will get you closer to an authentic relationship, all right? It's really important 
you can actually, once you've had a phone call, if you don't want to see that person, you don't have to. You block them. You move on. And you've saved yourself a lot of time. Um, so when I was at the Liftique event, um, I told a little story about some research that I read that I found really fascinating. And what this research was is they put a group of uh, men who were 80 years old in a house that was set 20 years earlier. In other words, the decoration of the house was what they would have seen when they were 60, the height of popularity. The clothing that they were given to wear were clothes that were the height of fashion when they were 60. The food that they were given, there's data on everything, would be the most popular dishes that were served 20 years earlier. The music that they listened to was music that was very popular 20 years earlier. Now, the fascinating thing is after just one week of living in this dystopian universe, this parallel uh, society, their biomarkers showed that their cells, cellular aging, had decreased. It had reversed a little bit. The point being, and the reason why I was telling this story was to talk about Liftique, that sometimes you can do all you can with diet and exercise, and then you look in the mirror and go, I still don't look as good as I feel, or I don't look as young as my blood work says I am. And somehow just uh, doing something minor can make a big change in how you feel about yourself and indeed how the world treats you because there's also that environmental feedback loop. And for the rest of the us, whether we're interested in Liftique or not, I want to say that the mind informs the body. The body informs the mind. They are not two separate things. And so how you feel, what you think, the behaviors that you do can transform your biology. In fact, uh, one couple of clinicians who I met at the event, and I hope to have them on the show next week or the week after, uh, one was a medical doctor and the other a neuroscientist, and they looked at emotional causes of illness. And their book is called, I think, The Listening Cure. I, I plowed through it last night because it was so fascinating. And it's about listening to your body and let your body tell you because so much, you know, back in Freud's time, there was some, he, you know, he got sent these patients that the medical community were absolutely stumped by. And in his time in Victorian England, they were, or in Europe, uh, they were women who suffered from strange paralysis, sudden blindness. They called it hysteria. Hysteria doesn't really exist nowadays. And what he learned is by getting to deep early life psychological trauma, they were released from their, their emotional prison and their bodies got better. Sometimes our bodies speak for us. In particular, psychologists are well aware that the stomach is considered the second brain. That it is very, very common when people have emotional trauma that it will go to their stomach irritable bowel syndrome, uh, pro digestive problems, stomach cramps, nausea, and that's where a lot of emotional tension is often put. Now, this isn't to discount the fact that real biological events happen. People get sick from cancer, heart disease, diabetes, uh, although type 2 diabetes is all lifestyle. Listen to me talk about low-carb life. <laughs> I talk about it a lot, and I'll continue to until everybody understands that sugar and grains are bad for us. Um, but it's not that real biological events don't just happen on their own. But there are some physiological conditions that are largely emotional. They have emotional roots. At the same time, if you are trying to heal from a largely physiological event, your mindset can actually impact how well you recover and how well you heal. So I sort of inspired myself as I <laughs> told that story about the old men in the house. And I was like, why am I listening to Bruno Mars and Beyonce when I could be listening to Sister Sledge 
and uh, some of the older artists that maybe I listened to. And so I started doing more and more research on this idea of music. And you will not believe what I discovered. When we come back, I'm going to try and experiment. So stay with me because I'm going to play different kinds of music for you and see what happens to your body. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Amy King, you got the news for us? KFI AM 640. Oh, come on. Didn't you move a little, wiggle a bit in your chair when you heard that song? Staying alive. Remember it, right? Well, I think music can help us stay alive. And on my way back from Anaheim, oh, I mentioned I was started in Costa Mesa at the Liftique thing, and then I ended up at the Anaheim Convention Center for a cheerleading competition. And on the way back, I thought about that story about the men who are 80 years old, put in a house with old clothes and old decorating and old food. Well, not, not too old. I mean, food that was popular 20 years ago and old music. And I thought to myself, well, I've never really tried it. And I couldn't think, I'm driving, I'm on whatever I was, the 91, the 605, the 405, the 5. You have to take so many freeways to get from Anaheim back to Venice. And uh, so I said to my 14-year-old, who knows how to just, using technology, grab a few lyrics and find the song. I'm sure, Joey, you know how to do that too, right? If I sang a song to you, you could find it and play it, right? Uh yeah, it it's, might be a little bit of a challenge. It's a millennial thing. There's devices. So I literally <laughs> started singing. I was trying to think of a song from my really early, early life. So I started singing, like walking in the rain and the snow when there's nowhere to go. And you're feeling like a part of you is dying. You're looking for the answer in her eyes. You know that one? Joe, you don't know that one, do you? No, that's all I did. And the next thing you know, there it is, playing out in the Bluetooth on my car. And I started laughing because I felt something. Okay, you got to tell us what that song is. Uh, I don't know. The Things We Do For Love? The Things We Do For Love. The okay, Things never mind, We I'll Do tell For myself. Love. Yes. <laughs> I was like going, oh, I need to know the name. The Things We Do For okay. Love. And so I, I felt something happen to my body. Now, I have a tremendous amount of insight. I'm a little bit of an empath. And I'm very aware of everything that goes on in my body. I mean, honestly, I was pregnant before the doctor would confirm that I was pregnant. But I knew I was pregnant because of this. I could smell certain things, and I knew. So I, I felt something happen in my brain. And I haven't heard that song in probably 30 years. And then I felt something go through my body. Like I felt a reaction. It felt like a little bit of an excitement. But I also was thrown back. To who I was at the time, I don't even know what year. That was early 70s, so I was probably middle school or something. And um, and I remembered a story. I used to go visit a friend of mine uh, when I was a kid, and this would have been in the 70s. And her dad used to come to the door, and he had his hair greased back. He was a greaser, yeah? like the movie Grease, right? His hair was slicked back, like he combed it back. It was greased. And he all he dressed like from the 1950s, and he always had music blaring in the house from the 1950s. And this was in the 70s, so that was a very weird thing. It would be like you showing up at a house and they only played music from the 90s. And so um, I, I used to think her dad was weird. But now I wonder how young her dad is if he's, because his cells were interested in it. Now, then I looked up the research, of course, and a recent study out of the University of Amsterdam shows that the bands and songs that people remember the most clearly and fondly in middle age are the ones that came, that they came to fall in love with between the ages of 16 and 21, late adolescence and early adulthood. In the same way, they asked them to name their favorite books, movies of the time, couldn't do it. It's the strong musical connection between those years, age 16 to 21, um, that the researchers think makes sense because our relationships with music really gets going as we enter puberty and becomes more intense uh, than through early adulthood. Um, the music, think of it, the music that we listened to when we fell in love, when our heart was broken for the first time, when we discover sex and learn the meaning of true friendship. So the thought came to my mind that potentially what I experienced when I was listening to the things we do for love was a hormonal shift in my body. Now, I have no research to prove this, but I'm saying I felt just a little bit incrementally younger listening to that song. 
So I have pulled up lots of other music research, and I am going to play in the next couple segments different kinds of music. Some of it make people drink more, spend more, be kinder, be more focused, uh, fall in love easier. And uh, so when we come back, let's go through a few of them and see if it works for you. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Amy King's got the news. By AM 640, Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. We are talking about how music can affect our moods and indeed our personality and maybe even make us healthier. You can keep in touch with me on social media. The handle everywhere is Dr. Wendy Walsh, just Dr. Wendy Walsh. All right, so if you don't need any more proof, know this that the advertising industry has long ago figured out what kinds of music make you spend more money. So, for instance, uh, if you go to a bar or restaurant, did you know the presence of high-tempo music makes you drink faster and drink more? And if you go to a restaurant, the presence of classical music or jazz music makes you spend more money. Do you feel classier listening to that kind of music? Maybe. Um, Some music can even make you kinder. Did you know they did some research in a flower shop? And they played all different kinds of music. But when they played love songs, people spent more money on music. We need to um, play those kinds of songs on social media. I know. Happy songs that make people feel good and do pro-social behavior. Instead of saying mean, nasty things. In fact, lyrics that have pro-social behavior um, make people kinder, believe it or not. All right. So there's one kind of music that mostly makes you relax. And it is classical music. So I'd like you to close your eyes right now. Not if you're driving, but if you're not driving. <laughs> <laughs> Caveat. Uh, and uh, listen to Vivaldi. So research has shown that blood pressure readings showed that listening to classical music like Vivaldi helped people relax very, very quickly. And their blood pressure, when it had been raised ahead of time, dropped back to normal levels in less than 59 seconds. Isn't that amazing? Just by listening. So if you want to calm down, go for classical music. So a while ago, I went to the Culver City Police Department. I can't remember why. There was some reason I was there to report something. Hey, I'm a community leader, and I report stuff. And um, as I was leaving, I noticed this large black pickup truck rolling into the back entrance where employees go in. And out of the windows came the most angry music, something like maybe this pig destroyer. Okay, Josh, I can't take it, I can't take it, I can't take it. Although, did you notice that I started headbanging? I mean, it's just a natural thing. So I was a little disturbed because I thought, is this what police officers listen to on their way in? And is this going to make them more aggressive? Like, I was really quite nervous. This gentleman was going in to put on a blue uniform and carry a gun after listening to this. But then I read the research. Did you know that angry music actually improves your performance? Joey, you listen to angry music on your way to work, don't you? I, I do every day, actually, on the 101. Oh, man. Yeah, definitely. Wait, why? Uh, uh, it, well, uh, why does it improve your performance? Yeah, not not why do you listen to it. Well, <laughs> I think there should be a little caveat, actually, that um, anger focuses attention on rewards. It increases persistence makes us feel in control and more optimistic about achieving goals. So let's say you were going to run a race or something and you needed, or you, you know, you listen to that kind of music, like you get pumped up. We use the words, right? We get pumped up before we do something and it makes us better able to focus. Now the research that I read was done on young males and video game playing. And they found that if they played this kind of angry music ahead of time, that um, they, they shot more enemies I don't know if this is good for oh. the police officer story, actually. <laughs> See, I but, would think that if I wanted to be happy, I would listen to, like, Pharrell. Of course we would. 
And of course, we have different brains too. I think the male brain on testosterone sometimes needs to get just pumped up in this way. Like, well, yeah, like for me, for when I'm uh, you know working out or something like that, there's there's no almost no alternative than uh, metal music for me because there's nothing that's going to get me you know amped and excited like that. But there's no beat to it. There, well, it depends on what kind of metal yeah. you're listening to. You know. Well, but if you're working out, you don't need it, and if it makes you angry, it makes you stronger. <laughs> well, well, when I'm coming into work. The reason I do it is simply to get me, yeah, pumped and focused for the show that I'm coming in to do. I, in, indeed, there's lots of research to say that music can give you a better workout, but do you want to know what kind of music gives you the best workout? Uh-oh. What? Whatever <laughs> Not you, metal? Whatever you love. Uh, that's so true, yeah. they actually tested people, and they put on music that they didn't like and music that they did like. And if you like it, you're going to work out harder and better. So well, that, and I've noticed, too, like if I go for a walk and I put my headsets on, if I've got music that I just dig... It's just like the walk goes by super fast and I feel better yep. at the end of it. And what kind of music do you dig for that? <clears throat> sometimes it's country music. Oh, oh. Um, Wait, we're going to get to country music in a minute. Sometimes it's like Sarah bareilles happy music. And uh-huh. um, most recently it's Hamilton. Oh, I it's should very listen inspiring. to that. Very inspiring. Mm-hmm. No I'm Pig a, Destroyer then. Amy. I'm a Beyonce. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no Pig, pig destroyer. destroyer. That's actually the name of a band. That's amazing. Um, and Beyonce could do it, yeah? Yeah, it could. Um, all right, so did you know that music can help you find love? Remember this silly little love song? Do you have silly little love song for it? Or silly love song? Well, maybe we don't have it. You think that people feel happy when I hear that. <laughs> Don't you? Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney. Oh. Well, they did research, and uh, what they did is uh, they played romantic lyrics like this, and they played neutral lyrics exposing the woman in some kind of public situation, and then they had a male participant in the study go up and ask for her phone number. And if a love song had played just before, she was much more likely to give up her phone number. Mm-hmm. So watch out, ladies. <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> if there are romantic lyrics, uh, you will be more likely to comply with a courtship request. Oh, my gosh. We're all being manipulated we, every second of the day. We are. We are. Um, well, here's one of my favorite ones. Can we play Staying Alive again for a second? Do we have to stay Alive there? Oh, I love this. I start doing the John Travolta move as soon as I hear that song. You can't help it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, did you know that song can actually save your life? Get this. At the University of Illinois College of Medicine, they had 15 physicians and med students perform a 100 compression CPR, chest compressions. Well, the key to having a successful CPR is rhythm. Look at Amy's doing it over in her booth. She's doing chest compressions. So five weeks later, they repeated the exercise while singing, staying alive inside their heads. And they found that the mean rate increased by about 14%. What happened when they played pig killer? (laughs) They killed their patient. (laughs) 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 Amy, why do you keep playing them if you don't like them so much? Do not do CPR to this one. Um, Okay, so the medical professionals actually reported that they had a mental metronome in their head, and it increased their technical ability and their confidence in providing CPR. We are not done yet. There are many other ways that music impacts us. When we come back, I've got a few more. And uh, then in the next hour, let's talk about sex, baby. Frequency of sex is declining. What does this mean? And why does scrotum size indicate whether you'll be a cheater or not? This is the Dr. Wendy Wells Show on KFI AM 640. Amy King's got the news for us. KFI AM 640, Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. This seems to be like my music show. Remember that one? Another one bites the dust. Don't they play that at sports games a lot? So it's stayed alive, this one. Speaking of staying alive. So uh, music can improve your work, believe it or not. Uh, In the most, well, first of all, music decreases work performance, but it makes you happier. 
while you work. I don't know if you notice, but I'm stumbling all over my words today. I feel like I'm not as well-researched, but boy, I'm having fun. I'm bouncing in my chair, and I'm really happy. I hope you're getting that. Um, but you, Joey, you like to have music in the background when you work. Oh, yeah. All Why? Maybe it's part of a distraction, actually. You know, it keeps me, uh, if I have that going on, it, it keeps me from thinking about other things. I don't know. It's All right. That maybe. So the research says that a little bit of music can make you sometimes more creative, and you're in a creative profession. But if you have ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, noise helps you focus. Absolutely. Stick so it to me, definitely. I'm one of those people that when I need to focus, I need silence. But uh, my kid always has something going on in the background. And she's like, no, honestly, I can do math better if I'm listening to this. I'm like, how? It's like messy to me. All right. I've got some news for you, Amy, about uh, country music you said you like to listen to. I do. Uh, let's have a little listen. A classic song. She put him out oh. Like the burning end of a midnight cigarette Is this Whiskey Lullaby? Oh yes, it's she one of the best songs ever. He spent his whole life trying to forget We watched him drink his pain away A little oh. at a time but he never could get drunk enough to get her off his mind until oh. the night. He put that bottle to his head and pulled the trigger. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so it's a song about suicide. You know that, Amy? You call it one of the best songs of all time? Oh, I love it. It's Brad Paisley and Alison Krauss. Yep. Amazing songs. So, so sad. There's no research to show that rock music or heavy metal music leads people to commit suicide. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's possible that country music might. Oh. The results of multiple regression analysis of 49 metropolitan areas show that the greater the airtime devoted to country music, the greater the white suicide rate. The white suicide rate? Yes. Like for white people? White people. Committing, which actually white people have the highest suicide rate right now anyway. So um, now that is called a correlation, not necessarily causality. You could also venture to look for other things like maybe these 49 metropolitan areas have the highest unemployment, the highest divorce, the highest addiction and all those other things. And then people, turn, you know, what comes first, right? The chicken or the egg. Maybe people demand country music because they're feeling depressed. Although, okay, that uh -huh. was that is one of the most haunting country music songs. Yeah, there is a lot of really great happy country music. There is. Okay, there just is. want to say Did that you know? in case you guys don't listen to country music, I'm a big fan actually. I think I'm going to start listening to it actually because I can understand never, the words. Ever, you can understand the words, That's and good. the stories are about love and um, relationships and getting your dog back, and it's all good news. <laughs> See, it's not. There's no violence against women, and there's no rape, and there's no ethnic ickies, and it's just it's just lovely, lovely happy music. It well, is I'm gonna happy. have to try it out, except for that one song. That was a really interesting song, but it's a great song. <laughs> so, and you know how I found that song? I literally googled the words "country music about suicide," and up it came number one. Oh, there you go. Listen to the whole thing. All right, music reduces pain. So if ibuprofen isn't doing the job for you, it might be time to put on your favorite song. Preferred music was found to significantly increase tolerance and perceived control over the painful stimulus and to decrease anxiety compared with things like using visual distraction or having silence. They didn't compare it to hand-holding because there's been a lot of research to show that just holding someone's hand reduces pain. Isn't that interesting? So listening to music can reduce pain. Uh, we talked about work. Music can make you smarter. There's a ton of evidence that music lessons improve IQ. It utilizes a different part of the brain. Um, there's even research to suggest that listening to classical music might boost brain power as well. So what they did is within 15 minutes of listening to a lecture... A bunch of students took a multiple-choice quiz featuring questions based on the lecture material. The students who heard the music-enhanced lecture scored significantly higher on the quiz than those who heard the music-free version. 
And we know about, you know, they've always been putting on baby Mozart and a lot of that has been kind of refuted, but we know that there are certain parts of the brain, spatial areas that are, that are used also the same areas for mathematics. And I found when my kids were little, they could memorize something better if it was put to a song. So my cell phone number, which I can't sing for you, or I'd give everybody my cell phone number because it's the same, I put to the Barney song. So it was like, <laughs> 310 my mommy. And I would sing that, and then we would sing it over and over and over when they were two years old. Well, look at the alphabet song. Yes. And Sesame Street. Sesame Street is such a great learning show, and it's all based on music. So... When we even when we're trying to study for an exam, listen. Are you listening, my college students who are taking exams from me this week? Um, you know, sing your acronyms. Find a way to get it into your brain. All right, so that's it on music. When we come back and we talk about sex, because music sometimes leans to sex. And you had a question, Amy, about how to get what kind of music is going to get a guy into a woman. Yeah. I'll answer that when we come back. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM six forty. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. We're having so much fun here, Joey and I, talking about music and what happens to our bodies. Okay, so, Amy, you want to know what music could be played in the background to get a guy interested in a woman? We know that love songs yep, I work. I need all the help I can get. If a guy wants to get a woman's phone number, he should be playing love songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the research shows that... Whatever song was playing in his sexual development, maybe when he was a teenager, that got him going, would be the song. So I'm thinking a song like this. (laughs) You remember this? Come on, Amy. Weren't you dancing to this once upon a time? Oh, yeah. Just letting it all hang. I'm not playing this at my house. Uh, yeah, so you'll have to calculate his age and then go on the internet and figure out what were the top songs about love and sex for men during that era. That's a little too much effort. I know. <laughs> hey, if advertisers do it in stores and restaurants to get us to spend money, why wouldn't we do set an environment, right? They must do it for um, the commercials, too, because you notice how, like, a lot of, like, really popular songs ends up, mm-hmm. end up in commercials. Yep. Mm-hmm. And they have even, Joey was telling me about a music producer who's known for making top hit, hits since, like, the beginning of time. Yeah, that's uh, Max Martin. Right. And so research has shown that um, popular songs... Uh, actually have what's called a high harmonic surprise. So they include relatively rare chords, then it returns back to normality, and there is a formula. And if you hit that formula, it hits the brain and you become like a number one hit. Yeah, absolutely. This guy, Max Martin, almost no one knows about him popularly, but he's the guy who's writing all the singles for Ace of Bass back in the uh, early 90s, all the way up until now. You know, he's recording uh, and producing Katy Perry, Miley Cyrus, uh, Nicki Minaj, I believe, is one of them, too. So any of these you know, hot new singles, it's the same guy. He's got the formula down. In fact, one might call him like the innovator of the pop music formula because it doesn't matter who the artist is, he can write you a number one song. Yeah. Shania Twain's husband, Mutt Lang, did the same thing. Yeah. Yep. Or the Backstreet way. Boys guy, I'm sure. Insane. So we're all being manipulated at all times. Isn't it lovely? Basically, by sound. All right. Um, did you know that frequency of sex is declining? Research shows that Americans are having far less sex than they were in the 1980s or the 1990s. Um, They were simply asked about how often did you have sex in the last 12 months. And what they found is that um, the participant, I'm trying to find out the amount, I'm reading this article. For example, when participants chose the highest number six, meaning they had sex more than three times a week, the authors used a five times a week as their best guess. And then, oh, so they came up with this yearly thing. And they're finding that, oh, it's only nine times fewer per year. So that's not a huge decline. 
I will say this. I think we hit a crescendo with sex, in frequency of sex, meaning that you have to remember that in our hunter-gatherer past, during our entire lifespan, we only laid eyes on about 150 different humans, and about 35 to 40 of them were related to us. So, and then half of the remaining weren't the, the gender that we were attracted to. So, therefore, we are wired to sit up straight and take notice when a hunter or a gatherer walks into our tribe who does not smell like our sister or our brother, right? And now we live in a time where a new sexual partner is but a thumb swipe away, a mouse click away. And in the last century, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, we had cultural barriers because sex and sex is and it was a high-risk hobby for women. Because of women's very unique biology, women are more likely to contract an STD through sex um, because their bodies emit a lot of oxytocin during female orgasm. They're more likely to fall in love and get bonded with the wrong kind of guy if they didn't uh, select well. So they're more likely to get a broken heart in that sense. And women are more likely to contract an 18-year case of parenthood. Now, before the pill was invented in 1962... It was not only a, you know, a bad day when they had a bad date and had sex with the wrong person, but it could be catastrophic for their life because there literally were no supports for single parents and so much mass-marketed shame on women. And so I think when the pill was invented in 1962, uh, we started to hear about more sexual freedom, more spontaneity, uh, one-night stands, And we got to see more of an expression of the wide range of human sexuality that exists. Now, not everybody is wired to be promiscuous. Plenty of people are wired to be monogamous. And anthropologists have always scratched their head about why that is. But they they suspect around 50% of us are mostly monogamous. Now, we're outliving our relationships because of our super long lifespans now. So even the most monogamous of humans may find that they might have two or three long stints of monogamy with some mate selection in between. We call that dating. And um, so what I'm trying to say is that those who like multiple partners, like short-term relationships, they are free now to do that. I mean, they've got apps for that. They can find people who are like-minded and life is easier. So why is sex declining? I think it's declining because we hit our crescendo. There are those that are maybe wired to be a little more monogamous who tried out the freewheeling lifestyle and went, "Mm, okay, not so fun for me. And also, these new millennials are putting their education and careers ahead of relationships because, frankly, women don't need marriage as much anymore as they did before. Now, I'm not down on marriage. I still want to say it's the best deal we have for children. Until we have more cultural supports for single parents, free childcare in every workplace, I will keep saying it until we have free childcare in every workplace. Um, a, you know, more laws on, you know, that the guys pay their child support, etc. As long as we have single parenthood that puts women into poverty, we're going to need marriage. That's important. But it's not for everybody, and there are plenty of affluent women who do just fine as single parents. But I think the other thing the millennials are doing is since they need marriage less, they're waiting. And while they're waiting, they're not connecting as much. They're in a digital world. They are texting. They are getting a lot of sexual satisfaction even from pornography and the Internet. And so they don't feel they need to seek it out. Do you think that... um... You know, the youth of today, they're actually physically maturing slower, would you say? Well, anything physical? Come on. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's Let's talk talk about about all the good things and the bad things that may be. Let's talk about sex. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. I just love that salt and pepper song. So maybe that's the one that I remember. (laughs) So, uh, Let's talk about sex. Why do people make love at night? Do you have any ideas, Joey? Uh, convenience. Convenience. 
<laughs> really? Because it's dark and <laughs> no, someone's there. Like I mean, maybe they're both off from a long day's work, you know. Because you can go to sleep afterwards. Oh, Amy's getting closer. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about having sex with someone, we use the euphemism sleeping with someone, don't we? We don't say, well, I guess we also say they're doing it. But we more often say, oh, he's sleeping with her. Did you know they're sleeping together? Not that most brief sexual encounters involve any sleep at all, but we still use that. Um, Did you know that infidelity can occur at any time of the day or night? It's an opportunity sex, right? So if you're cheating... You obviously can't sleep over if you've got a wife and kids to go home to or a husband and kids to go home to. Let's not leave out any gender when it comes to cheating. Uh, So, in fact, when anthropologists study hunter-gatherers, they find that when those hunters typically leave their huts at dawn, sunrise, to urinate, it's time for them to mosey over to another hut for a few minutes while their main companion is sleeping. So you can have quick trysts out of earshot from any sleeping spouse. You can do it at lunchtime. We use the term quickie, don't we? A quickie after work, etc. A nooner. A nooner. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, but researchers have found that most marital sex occurs around bedtime. In fact, more than half of all sexual encounters of all human beings occur between the hours of 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. That's the optimal time, right? Uh, and then another peak at 6 a.m. Those morning folks, right? Uh, that's when couples are obviously likely to be waking. Couples are usually most likely to have sex on the weekends. And that means probably that work schedules dictate patterns of sexual activity to some extent. Uh, And avoiding sex on work nights may help employees feel better rested for their day, right? Uh, So here's an interesting thing. If you think about it, for most mammals except humans, copulation is pretty brief. There are some exceptions like dogs, which take a little longer. Um, But the brevity of mating doesn't seem to interfere with fertilization. The same is not true. For us humans, though, because we are upright walkers, see, Amy, you were right, for whom gravity would tend to remove ejaculate from the reproductive tract. So lying down after sex can increase your chances of conception. And I'm sure uh, couples who go to fertility clinics are told that, right? Besides the don't wear tight underwear, guys, there's a reason why the scrotum is outside the body and not inside the body, and the reason why it hangs separately. It's supposed to be at a lower body temperature than the rest of your body. You know, there was one study done on male commuters in Europe who sat on trains with their laptops on their laps. We call them laptops. Wrong name for these computers. Put it up on the table, guys. Don't put it on your lap. Because just the heat and maybe the radiation coming from the laptop caused a decrease in fertility. It lowered their sperm count. So um, we need to lay down after sex if you're hoping to become pregnant. So does that explain why if you like are just having a hookup, you want to get up and leave right away? (laughs) Yes, because the other piece of it, Amy, you're so smart. Aren't I though? Yes. Is that (laughs) without an education, how about that? (laughs) Is that... Foreplay, obviously, increases the likelihood that you will obtain sex from a woman. We take, you know, we're a crock pot. You're a microwave oven. It takes us some time to get warmed up. So guys who learn good foreplay are more likely to get to complete the act. But it is the afterplay where you lie down together that contributes to intimacy and sexual pleasure. And this is thought even to affect conception as well. I mean, If the woman is stressed, if she's getting up right away, if she's not getting the love and attention afterwards, if her body's freaking out, there's less chance that she's going to become pregnant. Now, of course, if you don't want to have a pregnancy, that doesn't mean you're supposed to agitate her after sex. (laughs) Um, But there are lots of reasons why couples sleep together, and it isn't just about intimacy. Now, let's think again about our hunter-gatherer past. We didn't have IKEA duvets. We didn't have beautiful climate-controlled apartments and homes. It was a way to conserve heat. 
during the cold of the night in the winter. So it had survival implications, of course, and also protective implications. I don't know if you know, but women in general tend to be not as strong as men. Men have more muscle tissue. So having a guy by your side helps prevent attacks by wild animals or other enemies. I don't know about you, but as a woman, I feel so much safer when there's a guy in the house. I just do. Like, I think he's just going to get up and slay the dragon for me. Oh, the equal rights people are coming after you for that. I know, exactly. But, you know, we cannot deny that biological sex is very different than gender. These are two distinct concepts. And so, anyway, that's why we sleep together. It helps increase fertility. It, it helps release the cuddling hormone and increases intimacy. Wait, there's and, a cuddling hormone? Yeah, oxytocin, the cuddling hormone. Ah. It, it makes you uh, bond. It's a good one. All right, when we come back, sex does one other thing to people at night. It unleashes their tongue. Uh, not what you're thinking. They're, they're going to talk more, and I'll tell you what. It's a truth serum. This is the Dr. Wendy ah. Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Amy King's got the news, and I'll explain when we come back. Can't wait. I want to shoot, baby. Shoot. Oh, how you doing, baby? Shoot. No, not you. You. Shoot. The KFI AM 640. Yeah. It's Dr. Wendy Walsh. Shoot. Salt and pepper. That was another one that did it for me. That was a big hit. And it was like sort of the beginning of female sexual expression in our popular culture. And uh, I love the song. I've just unplugged my mic. There we go. Gotta hear that song. So there's research on other things that sex do to us mentally. Um, Remember that our sexual behavior system as human beings evolved to, you know, increase reproduction. And that's the primary strategy of all sex. So in order to have reproduction, you have to find a potentially fertile partner. You have to convince him or her to have sex with you. And you have to engage in general genital intercourse. Okay. Now there's one other thing. Human offspring are vulnerable during a particularly long period. If you think about it, every other animal is pretty much up running with the pack within hours of birth. But the trade-off for being bipedal, walking upright, is narrow hips. Our pregnancies used to be way longer before we were walking upright. So now we give birth to essentially premature infants who require a second pregnancy of sorts, an in-arms phase. Nobody left a baby in a stroller or down in a little basket on the jungle floor or a lion would eat it, right? So there had to be a period of time where you really had to protect this very vulnerable, very dependent infant. And so offspring had a much more likelihood chance of surviving if the two sexual partners stayed attached, stayed in a committed relationship, and engaged in co-parenting behaviors following that offspring's birth. So... Anthropologists look at our sexual behavior system and have come to the idea that our sexual system has been exploited by evolutionary processes. For instance, as I mentioned, uh, we tend to sleep together after we have sex. This helps promote bonding. We also tend to have sex in private. Many of other animals do not. We tend to create a private space to have sex again promoting attachment, promoting bonding behaviors. Finally, humans frequently have sex in what's called the missionary position. Joey, sex education quiz number one. What is the missionary position? The uh, kind of traditional horizontal. uh... I think all sex mostly is horizontal. Okay. Is it? (laughs) Well, some is standing, I guess. (laughs) Uh, So man laying down on top of a woman. Man on top, woman on the bottom. Yes. On her back. Right. Do you know how it got the name missionary? No, actually. Because when missionaries came to other countries and met indigenous people who often did not have sex in just that one position, they, the missionaries taught them 
and maybe they were increasing bonding. So what happens in the missionary position that can't happen in any other position? Come on, Joey. Yeah. Yes. Eye contact. Eye contact. <laughs> you know, they've done research in a lab. This has been going on since the 70s. And they have found that if you only put two people together and have them lock eyes for four minutes solid, do nothing more. Don't touch in any other way. Just stare into each other's eyes for four minutes. They both report feelings of falling in love. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Just looking at each other. So, again, the missionary position promotes attachment behaviors. So... What else happens? Well, when we have sex, researchers have discovered, or when we're thinking about sex, or when we're sexually attracted to somebody, we are more likely to have loose lips, give up personal disclosures. In fact, a guy will tell you when he's met a girl that she's not into him when she's not providing any personal information. He'll say she's cold, she's icing him out, She'll, he'll use these terms, but he'll just say, she's not into me. Because what we do when we like somebody is we disclose personal information. Uh, in fact, there was a study that examined whether just exposing people to sexual stimuli, whether they knew it or not, could have been subliminally, would motivate them to reveal personal information to a stranger. And in one of the studies, it was a total subliminal study, <laughs> They exposed people to um, an attractive, naked, maybe reclining man shown from the groin up. We don't want to see groin down, honestly. We are not visual wires just running. Okay, women do not want to see photos of your genitalia sent via text. I know that's projection. What you're trying to do is entice us to send you some visual stimuli. But when we get it, we're shook. Okay, we want to feel it in the dark. We do not want to see it. Okay, so just saying. So in this particular scientific experiment, they showed men reclining from the groin up, uh, probably with a six-pack, eight-pack, to female participants. And if it was a male participant, they showed attractive, fully naked. Oh, a woman kneeling, of course, photographed from behind. Oh, yeah, guys like those. Uh, and they were subliminal. In other words, they flashed so fast that you didn't consciously, you weren't even consciously aware. The participants were not aware that they were being shown this sexual stimuli. And then they um, disclosed over instant messenger a personal event to an opposite sex stranger. And judges rated the extent to which personal information was revealed during the interaction. And guess what? Uh, merely thinking about sex, even if you were unaware of it, encourage self-disclosure. Interesting, huh? And there were a couple other studies that did the same thing. So what we know is that these kind of findings indicate that the sexual system encourages self-disclosure and self-disclosure is a strategy that allows people to become closer to a potential partner. So when you're attracted to somebody, you share private secrets. In fact, if you want somebody to be attracted to you, the way to do it is to be authentic, to be real. I happen to know a couple who recently started dating, and he's a big, tough guy, football player. And she told me that on like their third date, he disclosed to her that he has a fear of flying. And he's managed to, he used to like literally drive to Arizona because he just couldn't get on a flight to Phoenix. And now he's managed to manage his fears to the point where if he sits in an aisle seat in the first 15 rows, he can get through it. So she found herself, she told me, more attracted to him because he was being real and being authentic. So this is the stuff. But again, if you're not sexually attracted to somebody and they start to disclose all that stuff, you're like, oh, no. So it is a, it's a way to be attractive. Okay. When we come back, we're going to get off sex and talk about the art of abuse, the subtle art of emotional abuse in our intimate relationships, the silent treatment. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Amy King's got the news. Oh, help me, please, doctor. I'm damaged. There's a pain where there once was a heart. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. 
You know, there is something that I call a traumatic bond. And this is love that is accompanied by pain. And we often, many humans, enter these kinds of traumatic bonds because we don't have an, in, well, psychologists call it, here's some psychobabble for you, an internal, a healthy internal working model of attachment. And what that means is in our early life, when we were pre-verbal, when our brain was tripling in size, something happened with our original attachment figures, generally our parents. And so we grew up with a kind of blueprint for love that wasn't healthy. And then we go into our adult romantic relationships. And even though you would think intellectually, you would say, well, I will never choose. I want to choose somebody who will make me happy. I want to choose somebody who will uh, be a good person, who won't cheat on me, who won't hurt me, who won't be critical. Unfortunately, we always unconsciously go back to the scene of the crime. And we find a partner who will not live out our wildest fantasies, but our wildest nightmares. Because unconsciously, we want to fix it this time. It's like the little girl says, I'm going to make daddy stay this time. So she falls in love with the bad boy, who's the cheater. And the guy says, I'm going to make mommy happy this time. So he falls in love with the unhappy critical girlfriend, who's always nagging him. That's the most common. So one thing about love, and these people spend a lot of their lives struggling to figure out what is normal, and is this treatment okay? There is... We have to have good conflict resolution skills in order to have good, healthy relationships. But what is a healthy conflict style? Well, there are all kinds of conflict styles. I mean, there are couples that bicker and bicker, bicker. Uh, I, I know a couple who does this, and he said, no, it's just sport bickering because then they have great makeup sex because the underbed is still love. There are other couples... Um, who try to ignore conflict, but then it builds and then they have a big blowout and then they're fine later. You know, they, they have their ways, but it's still relatively healthy. But research has shown, particularly the amazing research by John Gottman and his wife at the Gottman Institute on Marriage, the, the, I think they call it the Marriage Lab, um, that the worst kind of conflict is the silent treatment. It is where one person dismisses the other and the silent treatment can take all kinds of forms it doesn't have to be actual straight out silence there are ways that we undermine that we dismiss that we ignore our partner and i do say that be careful if that is your if that's your conflict resolution style because eventually the person who's dismissed will find somebody who will listen and that will likely be a lover or a lawyer truthfully. So what are the ways that people exhibit the unhealthy silent treatment? Well, the obvious, ignoring, giving the person a cold shoulder, ignoring or dismissing, disregarding their their existence, or just playing out discounting a comment like it didn't happen. Then there are those that are a little more sneaky. They're the evaders. So instead of flat out ignoring you, this kind of abuser just shirks off communication. They give one-word answers. They refuse to look you in the eye when they're talking. They give vague responses. They change the subject. I remember one time when I was young, I was dating this guy, and something had happened, and I wanted to ask him about some deep emotional thing. And I swear to God, I got the question out, and I was so proud of myself that I asked him this emotional question. And his response was, did you see who the guest on Letterman was last night? Swear to God. Just totally changed the subject. Then there's the ones that are subverting. They undermine the person's power. They're constantly judging the quality of their work. They're quietly sabotaging so that the other partner feels kind of destabilized. Um, then there's just full-on rejecting. Rejecting a refusal of affection. That's rejecting. Pulling away from touch. Remember the time that Melania Trump slapped Trump's hand? That's rejecting. Turning a cheek when being kissed. Oh, drives me crazy. Um, in a more deeper kind of abuse, there's quarantining, isolating somebody. That's a form of mental abuse, saying, cutting them off from their friends or their family, um, or even shunning them, taking it to the next level, getting other people, maybe in a religious organization or whatever, to shun them. This is abuse. 
make no mistake, if you are in a relationship like this and you cannot get your partner to go to therapy with you, then you need to go to therapy. Because if only one cog in the wheel of the family system changes, then you can change the system. Thank you for listening. It has been a lovely two hours. I am here every Wednesday in the one o'clock hour with Gary and Shannon, as well every Friday, uh, Sunday, what am I doing? From four to six with the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. You can also always find everything I do on the iHeartRadio app, keyword Dr. Wendy. Thank you so much for being with me. We'll see you next week. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Mo Kelly is next.